Hey folks, this is Jeremy. Uh, you're about to hear part of a three-parter episode that we recorded with Derek Varn. If you'd like to hear the entire episode, you can do so right now by heading to patreon.com slash giving the mic. How hyped are you about Avengers Endgame? Pretty hyped. All right. Um, See, there you go. Asked and answered. That was the question. Yeah, okay, cool. Ladies and gentlemen, you are welcome once again to giving the mic to the wrong person. I am your host, Jeremy, uh, joining us on a, eh, let's just say, a, a, a rainy but somewhat better early spring evening here in Portland, Oregon, is uh, we have Jacob here in the room and returning uh, returning champion Derek Varn on the other end of the of the horn. Uh, say hi to the viewing audience, Jake, uh, Derek. Hello. Thank you. Uh, Derek, could you g- give uh, give your a quick uh, introduction to yourself to anybody who may or well probably is not a first time listener, but you never know. Um, I am a teacher, a poet, and I guess a editor. And someone dare say I'm a theorist, although that word is so vague it doesn't really mean anything. I work for Zero Books. I work at a, an international school in Utah, which I will not name. And I work at Former People, which is a literary journal which I co-founded. Um, and uh, in reference to this, I te- I used to teach a course. I no longer teach it on um, analyzing conspiracy theories. Um, and I kind of feel like I lived through the height of the second wave of left-wing conspiracy theories because um, I'm of the age of left-wing troopers before that was solely ceded to the Alex Jones crowd. Um, yeah, modernity happens in odd ways. Yep. And join us in studio. Uh, would you uh, say hello to the nice people? Hello to the nice people. Yes, Jacob's here too. Everybody's out oh. to get me, but that's okay. Hey, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Yep. I'm used to it. There you go. But Derek, I wanted uh, wanted to have you on here because you had mentioned that you would. Uh, I think I think you know, I would uh, listen to one of the talks that you'd had with uh, previous guest JG Michael. On uh, on your mm-hmm. alternative show, uh, and I wanted to see because this has been, like I said, it's been a topic that we've been covering for a you know on and off for a little while. But I figured since you can actually teach this stuff, I wanted to see if you could do a offer a just say it's like we are effectively yeah we are auditing your uh, your intro lecture on the class. And, yeah, uh, please uh, please uh, go right ahead. All right, so if I if you were in my class, I'd be talking to you first of all about like two or three theories of parsimony. Now, I'm. you generally hear about the parsimonious argument as odd comes razor. I don't love that argument because it's not really an argument. Um, it's, it is the assertion that the, the, um, the simplest answer is most likely to be correct, but it doesn't necessarily give you a, a solid definition for what is simple. <laughs> Right. Um, also, what uh, could you define your? What's your definition of parsimony? Parsimony is something that has the least number of parts. Should be the heuristic you use to gauge the most likely 
answer. It is not anything but a probable answer. Gotcha. So okay. nothing that I'm going to teach anyone is going to debunk a conspiracy theory. And frankly, I'm not super interested in that. Um, for one, there's like a million podcasts or whatever you can go to do that. And for two, it's pretty much impossible to do in a way that would come to anything like, you know... Uh, Something that would... De- you know, permanently change somebody's mind as opposed to maybe parsely nudging them in a particular direction. Correct. I mean, changing people's mind on, honestly, isn't even a logical exercise, frankly, it's, it's a uh, rhetorical. And so, yeah. um, but the, the problem when we talk about conspiracy theory thinking is that it's a really broad category and there are actual conspiracies. I mean, you know, um, COINTELPRO happened, the church committee unlocked all kinds of stuff. Um, and actually, when I teach this class, the first thing I mention is you can kind of use what you found out in the church commissions and um, the declassifications in the 70s as a baseline for the most expansive conspiracies. So the things that have the most um, effect. And a couple of things you'll realize pretty quickly. Um, one, first, my first rule of parsimony, if it can be explained by by one or two people being incompetent and covering their tracks, it is more likely to be true than if it is explained by malice. Um, you can think of some of the experiments in, oh, the LSD experiments. Um, yeah, mid-60s CIA kind of like yeah. funding around stuff. Most of that's hidden because it really didn't do anything, and it just makes them look silly. Also, remote viewing is another example of that. That was classified for a long time because it's kind of silly um rule so that's kind of simple so when you encounter say a series of conspiracy theories like the mob killed jfk versus uh the caa killed jfk versus the standard story versus let's say um a, a conspiracy theory that i think is plausible although i don't know how plausible it is um, is that in firing back to Oswald, one of the Secret Service members actually did shoot, did accidentally shoot the president, and that is why they are, the discrepancies are there, right? So I wouldn't even necessarily put that one at a 50% likelihood, but if I was just going on priors from what I've learned looking at, like, church commission, uh, church committee declassified stuff, that one would be quasi-likely as opposed to... I don't know, anything that involves more than five people. Um, Okay, that's the first one. Second one, um, you can kind of throw that out there in wartime. (laughs) So, like, in... Well, I think false flags are dramatically overclaimed. We do have some on the record. Yeah, they happen. They're real. Um, I'm thinking about incubators during Iraq. Right. If it only requires one person in front of a congressional testimony, you can almost be certain it's probably propaganda. Um, I mean, you can see that right now, right? Uh, the debates over what happened to the to the aid in Venezuela. Aid in, in scare quotes, yeah. Venezuelan President uh, Nicolas Maduro is blocking life-saving humanitarian aid from getting into his collapsing country. Humanitarian aid, humanitarian aid, humanitarian aid, humanitarian aid, humanitarian aid. Yeah, aid, right? You can also assume that that the State Department probably is funneling money for the CIA. <laughs> that's 
that's kind of like there's such a strong historical pattern there of uh and diplomats are almost are so commonly part of the intelligence services of a country not just in the u.s that if you hear that you can assume it's true but you can also assume it's true for the other side and frankly historically speaking the other side is probably more competent with less money you can think about all the stuff the cia and the nkvd you know could pull off for good and ill um, versus what the CIA could pull off. Fourth rule: This is not a rule of parsimony. This is just a historical heuristic. Wait, wouldn't this be, uh, the, wouldn't this be the third rule? Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> third rule: This is not a rule of parsimony. This is a historical heuristic. Intelligence agencies like to put their like to have some hands in all baskets. So no matter who wins a conflict, they have some pool. So for example, if you look at say the Cuban Revolution, you can find um, United States money going to both the Batista government and even the Castro government at depending on the time and who they're, you know, who they're trying to win over. Um, this isn't even like, this is historically factual um, in the sense that like, it's, a, it's, it's not even classified anymore. Um, so what, why would the, why would you do that? Well, it's, the CIA kind of has like a, a bad, well, not a bad investor, conservative investors mentality to how it approaches social movements. They want to hedge their bets. Yeah, I mean, they they they're, they they want to hedge their bets. Um, well, and even beyond that, it's a decently sized organization that has an aggressive policy toward secrecy and classification. So, I don't think it's entirely shocking that sometimes one hand doesn't know what the other is doing. That's also true. Um, Another thing is, historically speaking, if you look at, for example, COINTELPRO and left and right wing groups, um, and I've studied both, uh, but both what they have done and has been declassified in regards to the stuff in the 60s, like with the Panthers, and stuff they have done um, with people like George Lincoln Rockwell, uh, um, the, the founder of the American Nazi Party. Um, one of the biggest things there is they tend to encourage people who are ideologically driven legitimately to spy <laughs> um you know for example uh one of the the main sources of information on george Lincoln rockwell to the fbi does not CIA here um was a person who was also kind of set up to be a communist spy i mean the spy on the communist party in america um if you want to read about that, it's in some of the um, beginning chapters of the book for race and nation. Um, more commonly, um, the book Heavy Radicals, which uh, Zero published, and I'm not plugging it because you know we published it um, because its sequel is from a different press, and I s suggest people read both. Can't remember the sequel's name right now, but it's about the uh, Revolutionary Communist Party and COINTELPRO's actions there. And what you discover there is that COINTELPRO, all it really did was encourage people to do what they were going to do or to voice their dissension louder. When people get killed, and this is even true in the case of the Panthers where they were much more aggressive, it's because they tend to involve local law enforcement who tends to be a little bit more gun happy. Funny that. Uh, so, you know, for example, the RCP, one of the stings on the RCP was, uh, was a local sting trying to mimic COINTELPRO stings, and it screwed up, and, some, and one of the RCP members was shot and killed by an uh, undercover cop. Um, I believe that was in 1981. But 
prior to that, for 20 years, COINTELPRO had been completely throughout the organization monitoring them because they felt that, that the RCP was in league with communist China and trying to um, take over the SDS, which, to be frank, was true. So um, that's not surprising. What is more surprising, though, is how much further they went. And, you know, this is where I'm, I tend to be more sympathetic to, uh, to, to Native American and African American conspiracy theorists. Certainly, <laughs> um, yeah. Much, much, uh, much more, much better documented, and uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just so many of them that we 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 have hard records for. But but for example, what COINTELPRO did with with um the Panthers was much more aggressive, including like running arms to Aoki in the Bay Area as a pretext to be able to crack down on them. It actually didn't really work, but. And, and you know that was a super big scandal recently because it was it was released after Aoki died, um, I believe in two thousand and twelve or two thousand and eleven somewhere in there. Hmm. We begin today's show with explosive new allegations that the man who gave the Black Panther Party some of its first firearms and weapons training was an undercover FBI informant in California. Richard Aoki was an early member of the Panthers and the only Asian American to have a formal position in the party. He was also a member of the Asian American Political Alliance that was involved in the Third World Liberation Front student strike. The claim that Aoki was uh, informed on his colleagues is based on statements made by a former uh, agent of the FBI in a report obtained by investigative journalist Seth Rosenfeld, author of the new book, Subversives, the FBI's War on Student Radicals and Reagan's Rise to Power. And he was a left-wing, kind of a left-wing hero in the Bay Area and in Oakland until it was outed that, you know, he was not just, you know, government front but he was actually running guns as a pretext for the government to clamp down on them so that stuff is simple but it goes back also it goes back to my rule of 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 parsimony it you don't have to have a lot of people to hide that you need one or two informants if there's only one or two informants involved and that's all you really need the the likelihood of it being true seems to go up pretty pretty significantly um not a hundred percent. Like nothing's a hundred percent. You can't. It, all these things are kind of hypotheticals. But um, you know, kind of using a layman's version of a ba- uh, uh, Bayesian analysis, just figuring out priors. That those those conspiracies are at least possible, if not probable. Right. Uh, can we? Uh, quick side note. Can we? Can we do a quick? Um, you explain. Uh, Bayesian analysis really quick because that was one. Of the, I know that was one of the, definitely one of the topics that I did want to bring up in our in our discussion tonight. <laughs> Bayesian. Um, Bayesian is where you kind of predict probabilities based on priors, and priors are just other events historically where this has happened. So you look at you know the number of X things that we have had of this type. You look at the number of instances that confirm to your hypothesis. You figure out a ratio. And you can figure out a ratio of priors, like in like say a hundred cases, we have twenty five prior instances of this happening. Therefore, there's like a one in four chance it could be possible. That's very, very, very rough Bayesian. It gets much more complicated than that. But for people who don't have like you know extensive mathematical models in front of them, it's that's how you kind of figure it out. Right, rough rubric. Yeah. Um, so we have two theories of parsimony. We have we have also the the simplicity, the number of people involved. Um, we have do not assume malice except in wartime. In wartime, that goes up dramatically. 
Um, but also, the longer if it's <laughs> this is a little bit complicated. But if it's less than a hundred and fifty years ago, but more than say I don't know seventy five, it should probably be declassified by now for something enough for something to have leaked about it. Funny um, how, yeah. if the government did it. Yeah. So I would anything that... longer than that. There's no records, but. I would point out that some of the JFK records are still classified. That's true. Um, and also the, you know, the classification links are pretty long. Um, I suspect, for example, there'll be elements of the 9-11 report, uh, of some of the back, back end of the 9-11 reports we won't see for way after our deaths. Um, that does not mean that I'm a truther, but, you know. What would they possibly have to hide about 9-11? I don't know. Maybe Saudi Arabia's involvement. What? <laughs> well, that is the thing. Yeah, that's the one thing. About that is the um, even like Michael Bohr brought up is like, yeah, hey, wait a minute. How come this particular family f- got flown out? In the days following September 11th, all commercial and private airline traffic was grounded. The FAA has taken the action to close all of the airports in the United States. Even grounding the president's father, former President Bush, on a flight forced to land in Milwaukee. Thousands of travelers were stranded, among them Ricky Martin, due to appear at tonight's Latin Grammy Awards. Not even Ricky Martin could fly. But really, who wanted to fly? No one. Except the Bin Ladens. Yeah, I mean, Mike. You know, Michael Moore is not not a hard truther by any stretch of the imagination, but he is. There are inconsistencies in the report. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it was deliberate. It, that's the thing; it was deliberately limited. Now, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, so when I tell people that, you, when you look at that, what do you jump to? You don't jump to the most expansive conspiracy theory. You jump to the meagerest one, which is we want to hide Saudi involvement because it's politically sensitive and we have interest in the region um directly related to arm cells and other things that we were doing at the time because you know like the saudi the the saudi arabian relationship to i don't know bathist um (laughs) is complicated and so and and, you know and shockingly still ongoing oh yeah yeah but Um, what's the expression it's something like um if you hear hoofbeats do you think you know do you think of zebras? Yeah, exactly. You know, you go to you go to what you have the historical priors for. Now, these kind of three three rough rules, and they're kind of interrelated, get you on governmental conspiracies. Conspiracies. When you get into like business conspiracies, it's a little bit more um, murky um, because collusion is always um, profitable. <laughs> So, well, and because businesses have no need to declassify information, right? So, and you're also right. Like businesses do not, you know, they have no need to even keep records for a lot of things. So that's also a lot more murky. But business conspiracies aren't as sexy as governmental conspiracies, frankly. Even among even amongst left wingers. So you know, there's that. Why do you? Um, why is that? Do you think? Well, because. The betrayal of trust isn't as there as as much, frankly, because I don't think most people trust. Even right wingers don't really trust businesses. I mean, they say they do, but they don't act like they do. So, I think people kind of baseline assume that businesses are crooked. <laughs> so, well, I think um, part of it is also just the fact that 
conspiracy theorists do like evidence. They don't necessarily have the best rules for their evidence, but it's rare for me to meet somebody who has wild conspiracies based on nothing. Some of them may base it on dumb, insane things like the fact that Trump said a sentence that was 17 words, therefore he must be involved with QAnon or something like that, but they don't just make stuff up whole cloth, usually, in my experience. Whereas with this business stuff, we can kind of speculate that there's something there, but in a lot of cases, we really just don't know. Right, and there's there there also is no need for elaborate codes. There's no need. So when you when you look at business conspiracies, the best way to spot them is statistical irregularities, which is also not as sexy. Um, numbers do not have the same narrative power as as facts that are easy to narrativize, yeah. which is kind of my fourth. My, my four factual th- like thing that I talk about them is statistical cons- statistical conspiracies and things that show up and irregularities in markets and statistics um, are in some ways actually easier to find in abstract, but they they just don't have the same narrative power because we think in terms of of narrative that's kind of easy to explain. And, um, and when it comes to dealing with large-term trends or even even specific conspiracies, that's not always in our favor. Can you give an example of the of, of like the uh, statistical irregularity? I'll Enron. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like Port- any time where you see like expansion is going um, at like a hundred and thirty percent larger than the growth of, say, the market at the time, which at the time would have been like, well, I don't know, like 1.5% nationally. Like, that's almost impossible, except in a brand new field. And they were were based in Portland. Right. They had offices in Portland. So, you know, how they were doing that, I mean, that's a kind of collusion where you're inflating your possible profits off of maximum and then, you know, hedging your bets against it. And only part of that was even technically illegal, so... Um, I wonder why. Other, that, I wonder if that's not why election fraud isn't a bigger thing. I've read some stuff by Greg Pallast in particular, who makes some pretty shocking allegations. But it seems like unless you have something that's obviously cartoonish, like somebody telling somebody to throw out ballots, or a situation with somebody like Maduro, where a million people voted more than there should have been nobody really seems to care even if it's numerically obvious that something just totally fraudulent happened oh yeah well growing allegations of voter suppression are emerging in the hard-fought race for governor in georgia polls show the contest between republican brian kemp who is secretary of state and democrat stacey abrams is basically a dead heat civil rights groups are suing kemp for putting more than fifty-three thousand voter registration applications on hold mostly from minority voters And Monday, dozens of black senior citizens southeast of Atlanta were ordered off a bus bound for the polls for early voting. You know, I used to think about that. I followed Greg Palace during the aughts, and I think maybe he overconcludes, but he had some pretty good points about weird, weird trends that you could see. And for a lot of, depending on your locality, like my home state doesn't have paper ballots for anything. Like, there's no printouts. And die bolt machines are 15 years old and very easy to hack. They were pretty much all installed off of uh, laws that were created after the um, 
2000 election, um, the 99-2000 election, with Al Gore. And that's when, like, the electronic voting system stuff was enacted because there's a ton of federal money put to it right then, and there's been almost none since. Um, and, you know, there's just – there's also tons of legal conspiracies like um, – the way gerrymandering's done, the way voter initiatives are played out, like those are conspiratorial. People are colluding, but they're not illegal. So there's not really a whole lot you can do anyway, um, even though they obviously are in violation of the spirit of the law. Um, but the spirit of the law is not really what matters. Right. And, and mm. so, you know, I, I actually a lot of times get kind of frustrated, like, what I'm and here I'm not even talking about structural inequities, which I think people should be paranoid about because systems work in ways that don't require people to have malice or even incompetence. They just kind of self perpetuate once they get started. Um, which, which is one of these things when trying to disaggregate conspiracies, and this is my fifth thing, it gets really difficult. Is can something be explained by force of habit? Are are an un, are a hidden systemic bias or a hidden systemic structural thing? And I'll give you an example. Like um, when I worked in insurance, I realized that minority neighborhoods still got disproportionately charged for um, all kinds of things by by by. In, they got rated higher on this and that. They got hit harder by crime rates. The um, the actuarial tables did not account for race. But you know what What set all that up? Trends that are effects related to redlining. Like even once you stop redlining formally, those neighborhoods would still show up as having those problems on any kind of actuarial table. So they get hit with harder fees and disproportionate loan rates and all this other stuff that is structural. Now, originally it wasn't structural. Originally it was explicitly set up under the law. But even when you remove that barrier – it can self-perpetuate. It could self-perpetuate in a society, frankly, that was even run by that minority. Like um, when I worked at unnamed insurance company, we actively hired minority actuaries. It didn't change anything. And this was back in your hometown or home state? This is home state. So th this is in Georgia. Okay. So, but I actually worked when I when I worked for um for said unnamed large insurance company. I actually worked for the entire like East Coast. Hmm. So, and I was a compliance, um, I was a compliance uh, accounts receivable auditor, so I would look at irregularities and numbers, um, which is interesting because my degree's in English, but I'm pretty okay at math, so that's how I got into that job. Hey, uh, and I just noticed these trends, like, oh, look, all these weird actuarial tables, like, we can go hire, um, and we were actively hiring management from, like, historically black colleges and stuff. It didn't change anything because the, the trends established by redlining had biased the statistics for so long that it still showed up in actual tables and probably will for another 50 years, you know, if it ever gets out of it. And that's, that's not even adding into compounding factors like, you know, lack of inherited wealth and stuff like that. The fifth thing is often the structural stuff, and again, this is related to the statistics – is more pernicious, more damaging, and probably kills more people than a lot of other stuff. But since it's harder to narrativize um, and harder to get a get a like, there's no oh, and some of those things. The p people to blame are like a hundred years dead. Um, and while like liberal narratives around privilege do sort of get to some of this, 
it's it often doesn't it's still not precise enough to really understand how the structures really got themselves into the society. Um, and then you compound that there are still plenty of real Vegas in the world who probably also are making decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, things get worse. But it doesn't require much. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the things that I see large-scale conspiracy theories um, try to answer are better answered and more possibly answered by structural like by structural inertia but that's harder to narrativeize and like and even like yeah we know everybody likes to scream about the system but with by the system they usually mean specific people and sometimes that's just not the case now in cases of stuff like well, this is why i pointed out with war you can't often that isn't the case war is usually more actively colluded on um and so it gets very complicated um so those are my five rules for how you would say judge something. And so, for example, when I talk to the kid, when kid I actually refused to talk about nine eleven because I didn't want to argue about truthers. But when people ask me about nine eleven conspiracy theories, I will say I do think there's suspicious stuff in the reports. I do think there is plenty of evidence that Saudi Arabia and maybe some other um, U.S. allies were involved in some way. Maybe not. Maybe not intentionally, but maybe. And that this was um, papered over. I also suspect that prior U.S. incompetence in foreign policy was papered over. Um, and I don't just mean like you know Chambers Johnson blowback, but just you know, like literally the Bin Laden, like the Bin Ladens kind of got their start fighting, you know, helping helping the Mujahideen in Saudi in uh, Afghanistan from a perch in Saudi Arabia to fight the Soviets, which was explicit U.S. foreign policy. So And setting, setting up the Hollywood epic Ramble 3. Oh, yes. I, I actually bring that, when I teach history, I actually talk about that to my class. <laughs> about why, why was Rambo 3 softened over, you know, in its dedications and stuff like that. What you see here are the Mujahideen soldiers holy warriors. To us, this war is a holy war. And there's no true death for the Mujahideen because we have taken our last rites and we consider ourselves dead already. To us, death for our land and God is an honor. Uh, although we're now getting so far away from that that they don't know what Rambo 3 is, so tragic. Tragic, and uh, not that tragic. It wasn't that good. No, it's, oh, it's terrible. Rambo Two is where the action's boy. at. Well, yeah, we. I mean, we. And you're, this is a show where we did an entire. We, I mean, an entire episode. We just called it the Stallone Show and talked about it. But no, it's just, just the very particular weird. You know, the weird time and place where this was a Hollywood blockbuster set in fucking nineteen eighty nine Afghanistan. That even like yeah. at at the time, Mad Magazine was my, making fun of. I was like, wait, why are you shooting at the at the Russians? They're leaving. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I mean, that's... You know, as a side note, um, ju- just it's interesting if you wanted to trace, like, the uh, the kind of, like, cynicism of, of, say, the baby boomers, you can trace both Rambo and Rocky from their first movie, um, which has kind of... They both actually have kind of proletarian... <laughs> Yeah. Um, um, residences to their third and fourth instantiation. 
Yeah, that's the um, yeah that yeah we yeah we we, we like to, even in our episode we kind of talked about that about how you like the two franchises are just small tiny little character studies that are like not uh, I don't I don't know, I don't want to say not not an interest in at all but very much just um, you know not, have nothing to do with Cold War shit all of a sudden they you go a few years into the into hyper corporate Hollywood in the Reagan era and Cold War shit and then. There you go. You have, um, you know, rest in peace, uh, Clever Lang. Wait, no, right. no, no, not Clever Lang. Uh, Apollo Creed. My mistake. No, rest in peace, Apollo Creed. Yeah, it is interesting that we got what was essentially a soft remake of Rocky with Creed. But can you imagine the meltdown that people would have if you had a modern day remake of First Blood, where a returning veteran just goes ham on some cops? Oh, Lord. Yeah, you can't really remake First Blood anymore. Yeah, people would freak out. It would be amazing. Somewhere, I still have the, I still have a copy of a paperback of the original novel. I have no idea where I put it. David Morrell. Yeah, that it's, it's somewhere in, somewhere in, we have, we have like 10 bookshelves here. So somewhere in one of those bookshelves is that book. Oh. Well, that, that, that book is fascinating too, but sort of, you know, not related, but it's, those are sort of my my rough rules on that. Now I know this is kind of these rules are a little bit hard to disentangle because they kind of feed into each other. Um, but the two the the two harder ones are the last two, which are can you explain it um, using some kind of intentional or unintentional effect? That doesn't really matter. Can it be explained by structural inertia, either intentional or not? And can it be explained? Um, what are you not seeing because you're not looking at statistical and numerical data? Um, and then the other three are if it's incompetence, incompetence is usually going to be more likely to be true than malice just based off priors. If it involves less than two people, it's more likely to be true. And if there is a very clear and immediate foreign policy agenda, that does complicate things. But you can assume – for example, that the State Department is, fun- is probably funneling money somewhere, and that's not even that. I don't think many people would even really contest you on that unless they're being disingenuous. Uh, another int- – oh, God, I just – we're we're connecting all sorts of things tonight in terms of the State Department f- funneling money to foreign things and, say, Central and South American exploits during the 80s. Um, do you remember the opening of Predator? Yes, I do. Jacob, do you? Yeah, do you remember what? Do you remember what Carl Weathers, aka Apollo Creed, played in that film? Wasn't he a CIA guy? Yeah, he's a CIA agent. Yeah, layers within layers, folks. It's all coming together. Also, I you know you can usually assume Marvel is doing government propaganda because that's kind of what it's done since World War Two. A lot of firsts have happened here. The test and evaluation at Edwards paves the way for the Air Force. Any aerospace system that we have now or we've had in the past comes through this location. Making it a fitting place to film a movie said to be breaking boundaries. Free Larson stars as the first ever solo female Marvel superhero, Captain Marvel. Um... But, you know. Okay, well, now, hold on. I'm going to have to jump in here. Captain America <laughs> is an extremely complex symbol that has taken on many forms under different writers. I would point, of course, most famously to his time as the hero Nomad after Watergate, where he abandoned the costume and traveled the country on a motorcycle. Fair. Um, 
Well, and and we and we are recording this in the midst of Captain Marvel is still in theaters, which had explicit Air Force. But prim- I mean, fuck, they had they had fucking flyovers on the, the night of the ho- of the red carpet premiere. Although, yeah, I, I was kind of amused by watching right wingers get mad about that though, because I'm like, okay, well, you didn't have a problem with that, and I don't know Top Gun, um, <laughs> or like like every airplane movie in the eighties, but it's i just sort of assume those are given and and hollywood's particularly given towards it just kind of like cable news is given towards being bamboozled by things because it needs access to have any sort of verisimilitude and so usually access comes with strings i mean that's not really a conspiracy theory though it's no it's not it's obvious it's it's structure that's that is one of the things is like how do you explain to somebody and we're getting into i think this is getting into much more into i don't know philosophy psychology or epistemology how do you explain help someone start thinking in turn who's not used to it and maybe is you know because they're not quite a leftist or something how do you um explaining to someone how to think in terms of structures and systems rather than just a direct causation so this is a little bit this is hard system thinking is difficult to train people in but like when i talk to kids about structural inequity uh the first thing i do is bring up inheritance all right so let's say, I don't know, you're an upper middle class right person whose parents inherited part of their wealth and you've inherited part of your wealth. And you and you know someone down the street who has the exact same income as you, who's going to have more wealth? The, the heir. The heir. Every kid gets that. Then mention slavery. <laughs> All right. And, and like, I'm not training kids to be woke. I mean, I mean, I kind of am, but that's not actually my... I don't see that as my job, uh, you know. Um, what I what I'm training them is to see, like, no, that's that is perfectly logical. That you know, inheritance that you had, I don't know, a 250 year head start on. Um, if you are of a certain social class and of a certain race, now, unfortunately, um, even when people say they think about structure, they tend to personalize in ways that aren't helpful. For example, um, for example, talking about checking your privilege. Okay, yeah. I've always thought privilege checking was kind of irrelevant. Like knowing that I'm privileged doesn't change pretty much anything. Yeah, I think uh, Phoebe Maltz Bovey has her book. I uh, was I think it's called The Perils of Privilege that she yes. wrote. She wrote during. She, I think she wrote it during the 2016 election. Um, That's. And she's coming from much more like left liberal side that it's like, yeah, it's it's great, but like it doesn't. Okay, fine. It's effectively it's almost like a form of like noblesse oblige. Like, okay, you are now like perform. You're now like uh, proclaiming how aware you are of something. Like, what does that change? Hang on one second. Um, We just have we got cat. I got a cat that's um, demanding attention. I got to let her out. One moment. No problem. I understand cat issues. There's a cat in the background. I like cats personally. Me too. You know, there's a movie called Cats and Dogs, which advances the theory that there's actually a massive conspiracy uh, revolving around cats. Oh, interesting. They're they're getting up to all kinds of uh, antics. And this is, uh, of course, they really get into it in the sequel, Cats and Dogs 2, which I would highly recommend. Sounds fun. Yeah. That was, uh, I'm trying to remember what was it. Oh, yeah. The Revenge of Kitty Galore. Okay, that's pretty great, actually. Yeah. I can I can get behind that. Yeah. 
But the thing you mentioned about the 9-11 stuff is interesting to me because I'm a JFK guy from back in the day, but I've never mm. really been interested in who shot him or why. I've always been really interested in the investigation surrounding it, where I think you can point to a lot of really shady stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean there's legitimately shady stuff in the Warren Commission. Well, like, but we know, for example, that high-ranking people in the CIA actually spoke to Warren and said, you know, it would be really cool if this wasn't mentioned or that wasn't mentioned. And we know that the FBI destroyed documents relating to that. And we also know that the autopsy wasn't done right. And I mean, there's there's all kinds of issues. Um which is why, like, my per- I actually do tend to believe, like, if you were to ask me to put money down on something, I tend to believe that the Secret Service probably accidentally shot him. But, um, which would explain to me a lot of those inconsistencies. But I can't know. I mean, the other thing is, like, there's so many Cold War things that people tend to forget when they talk about, you, you know, um, Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby and... Um, the CIA's involvement in that because the, it, it is talked about in a context as if it was just a lone conspiracy or maybe they bring up embarrassment over the Bay of Pigs or something like that but you you it usually isn't really talked about properly in its Cold War context in the kinds of um, like auxiliary things that people would be interested in, in hiding um, and that I mean I do think there's legitimate reasons to be suspicious of that kind of stuff but just because like, I don't know. I, having dealt with large-scale bureaucracies, even as a socialist, I tend to I tend to see, like, all kinds of bureaucratic drift issues um, and hiding things out of, like, sheer embarrassment or hiding things because of – not because of the direct effect that it has, but that there, that there might be something smaller but pretty pernicious that's indirectly tied into something – and you're hiding the blowback from that. Um, I mean, we got plenty of evidence of that in uh, yeah. the last, I don't know, 20 years even. You don't even have to get the declassified stuff. There's just stuff that's kind of obvious about about that kind of stuff. And um, so I don't want to tell – I don't like – I always feel strange – because a lot of people see me as an anti-conspiracy thinker. And when it comes to stuff like Alex Jones or like hard trutherism, I am. But – on on the like this kind of like you know if you listen to something like skeptics guides to the universe there is sort of a tendency to just kind of trust government reports that i think is kind of an overcorrection um in a way that's probably pretty dangerous yeah on a a similar note uh, connected to something uh, you mentioned how do you help folks be okay if it's this is at all possible it's the thing is like how do you help someone be or feel okay with or be able to handle the ambiguity of like at some point there's just shit we can't you know we will never be able to know and yeah that kind of sucks but at the same time it's like you know the um you know the sun's still going to come tomorrow and there's still shit we need you know we still need to mow the lawn you know there are still cats to be fed there's still stuff we got to do and we just have to continue life with this with this this ambiguity this this gap of in the narrative well i mean that's really hard and structural thinking there actually doesn't always help because one of the things that i've noticed on the left is we tend to typologize things in ways that also like it like make irregularities or um, systemic inconsistencies not matter. Like we tend to, 
like you know you can talk about you'll you'll have people talk about specific mechanisms for something like the decline rate of profits you know i believe in that whatever mm-hmm. um or something like that but then uh, when there's any kind of disconfirming anything they jump to such a high level of abstraction that you don't have to deal with it so system thinking isn't always going to be your answer to that i always just like to just point out that that like they're not to get all like conspiracy theories monger and this quantum loo stuff but there is there is certain sense to certain thought experiments like the schrodinger's cat experiment for example there is no actual answer to that yeah, it's like a, it's almost like a zen cone cone yeah cohen cohen cohen, cohen. cohen. Yeah. leonard cohen <laughs> it's like cohen but but japanese not jewish um but yeah it's uh unless there, you're there, unless you are unless you are uh, leonard cohen who at one point was a zen monk well, you know, it happens. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Sorry. I had to, part of my interruption, I had to get that joke in. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I've been I've, – I haven't changed my strategy in a lot of this, honestly. I used to be guns out – I used to come guns out blazing, you know, left-wing shitlord sort of uh, approach to a lot of the stuff. And lately I have been doing this thing where I do Rogerian arguments – where I try to find the two or three things I can grant someone as a as a shared understanding, mm-hmm. and then systemically pull away. Uh, um, quick, quick back on. Did you say Rogerian argument? Yeah, like 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 the psychologist um, Rogers. So oh, Rogerian okay. argument. Okay, cool. I just did. I didn't. I didn't know the. I didn't know the name. Yeah. So it's it's where you where you ground that you ground as much of the candidate argument as you can. For two reasons. One is the heuristic of charity. So if you beat someone with a stronger argument, you 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 have a better you've won. And I know that part of what's hurt this is um, a lot of right wingers have started using this as rhetoric. They actually don't do Rogerian arguments. They're totally a lot of their arguments are totally in bad faith, but they say they do. So granting anything anybody any kind of ground premise to argue on becomes almost impossible. And uh, and frankly, our own tendency towards um, ideological or narrative, um, either one, consistency can be a problem here because granting the initial arguments can feel like a betrayal. And so – but that means you really can't – like if you start out with that model or objective, um, convincing people is impossible because to even talk to you, they already have to accept all your, your premises, which they're not going to do. Mm, yeah, but that's, um, that, yeah, that is. But that's been one of like my, my own issues of like trying to explain, just talking to folks about, uh, just yeah, being able to handle ambiguity and just the not knowing and the I guess in trying not to do the carpet bomb of you know like I said guns blazing or even go. I mean, I'm not, thank God I've never gone to. Uh, <laughs> I was I didn't I wasn't raised in the later era, the YouTube era where like so many kids saw all these like. Like Ainsley McCree talks about this about how many because you know so many kids saw all these debunking and skeptic videos uh, from like a lot of people who went on to become either like full on like asshole libertarian or like alt right types. And or, or, or went through both. I mean, you, you think of the case of Pat Condal or uh, even uh, Sargon of Akkad. Both came out of that world. I mean, look, I kind of come out of that world. So um, time and place, folks. Time and place. Yeah, I mean, like I came. Actually, I was I was even weirder, and I went the complete opposite spectrum. Like I started off kind of a scary right winger, went through a period not of a, not of libertarian, but in that kind of skeptics community debunking phase, 
which weirdly actually led me to socialism. I was an odd man out of that one. Um, and then sort of woke up and noticed that half those people were like quasi alt-rightist and like less wrong had, you know, the site left wrong and got insane. And, <laughs> and people were like misusing genetic arguments to talk about sociology and like, you know, yeah. Like weird, weird Sam Harris shit. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, if you want to talk about, if you want to talk about advocates for bays in stuff, I guess the big people would be Yudkowsky, and there's a historian named Richard Carrier who's a big advocate. Yeah, yeah, I know Richard. I know Richard Carrier's work, and actually, of the kind of skeptics world, Richard Carrier is not that bad. Um, but I, I, I should be careful of that there might be something terrible he's done that I don't know about. He's an but, um, sex best, I guess. I don't know if that counts, but well, yeah, that's pretty terrible. But. Um, but isn't that? Never mind. I won't say that. Uh, I don't want to dis- just everyone in that community. But <laughs> that seems to be somewhat endemic, <laughs> even even for Merce. I mean, like, look, left wing nerd community is actually endemic with se- with sex pests too. But well, to it's, Carrier's it's, credit, he seems to limit his skepticism to the religious fields largely. Yeah, and um, not even all of them. Like, he's actually pretty very limited to stuff about ancient Mediterranean because that's his field of study. Sure. Um, like he, at one point he said it was a Taoist. <laughs> I don't think that's, I don't think he still goes by that, but I, I know that what, like in his, um, before he got his PhD, you know, now we're going on a deep nerd train. Like I, the thing is I, I've been part of this culture. I, I see myself as coming out of it. Um, and I also, you know, I can talk a little bit about myself, and this is the one thing I do to convince people. You will notice that I've granted the viability of a lot of small conspiracies that people may or may not believe, mm-hmm. and that their their doubts are legitimate. And the other thing is, I also come out of that community, and so does you know, so does one of my um, colleagues at Zero. I mean, Douglas Lane started off as kind of a hard trufer, and over time and study, um, like became sort of a soft truffer, so to speak, like, or not even a truffer, just like the 9-11 the Commission report has a lot of stuff that it's obviously hiding, probably. Yeah. You know, <laughs> obviously, probably. Well, that, um, that is, yeah, that is kind of a thing. It's like, at some point, it's almost like reassuring people that, yeah, you're, you know, you are in court, like I said, we'll bring up Corey Pine talking about how a lot of these, a lot of like the online, the really like prominent online, the ones who aren't um, overt grifters are well, you know. Before, of course, they you know. Eventually, we they, uh, and a lot of them end up wind up dr- drifting into the area of starting to believe their own shtick because that's you know you fake you know it's it's very much fake it until you make it or fake it and fake confidence until you are confidence confident same thing yeah uh, drink your own Kool Aid so to speak like yeah, but, I mean everybody. That's a tendency of all things, too, not just conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, I can remember it's, people, would say, uh, I remember reading about this, uh, people talking about George Carlin near the end of his life was that, um, because his shtick was this kind of, was a very, was a very particular affect that he would put on on stage and eventually it just kind of like, it, it seeped in a bit too much and, um, and kind of like curdled a lot. Kind of, it actually. Kind of think about it, I'm kind of curious exactly what like George Carlin would be like now, if he would have just gone. If he would have gone like, um, you know, gone like late stage comedian who runs out of runs out of material and is just is just cranky, which I don't mm-hmm. think he he wasn't he wasn't quite. A, he's, he, which I don't think he never was like that kind of like. 
You're smiling, Jacob. What? I'm just imagining the seven words that you can't say on YouTube. Oh, that 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 doesn't make me feel good. Yeah, it's the tendency of you know acknowledging the people that there are there are. It's almost like validating their uncertainties or their doubts that yeah, there's something uh, particularly fucked up here, but. Um, it's at some point it's like it's like handling the scale of what comes into f- of because like everybody needs to fill the gap nature abhor- nature and our own kind of like self narratives abhor vacuums and something has to fill that gap otherwise you know you you can't have you can't have a three legged you know you, you can't have a three legged square table you need that fourth leg there to prop to support this whole structure and so you're going to come mm-hmm. up with something like how uh, of the of like a, you know it's kind of like you know, Treading on, you know, you know, taking tender steps to acknowledge that, yeah, you, you know, your feeling that something is very off here is valid, but there is a, um, a lot of times people either overcorrect or just kind of amplify their speculation about what could this possibly uh, be. As a, well, you know, I mean, yeah, one of the things is you have to get people to divorce, and this is this is psychology flat out. This is not logic, right? To divorce themselves from their terror management. Um, and that's hard. I mean, like that is really, really hard. And I don't just encourage that with like conspiracy theorists. I actually encourage it with left wingers. Like every left winger should imagine on a regular basis what the null hypothesis to every one of their beliefs are, um, which even the moral ones, which makes people really uncomfortable. Like what if your moral beliefs actually lead to more suffering in the world? Now, I'm not saying you need to believe that, but you need to entertain what it would look like if it was true, because that's going to be your beginnings of being able to test the validity of your own ideology. And I get into hard fights with a lot of my comrades, you know, to use that silly word that we leftists tend to use. You know, I tend to be my my favorite non-gendered word for people is peeps, which has, you know, no strong historical association other than with marshmallow ducks um or chickens or whatever they are um the peeps it uh, it, vary, um, it, it they it varies by the season but yes <laughs> the focus here has to be on you have to grant that you could be wrong on pretty much everything in fact i i i tend to think that like ideological ideological effectiveness and and the inability to betray is that like an unwillingness to betray your cause it's actually somewhat based in being willing to admit you could be wrong when i've seen people who are the most hard-lying true believers on an ideological way and like left-wing causes and i can think of three or four people i've worked with who then flipped to be rightist and they were a hundred percent sure of one thing and then you know that kind of sort of starts to crack a little bit and they completely break and they're a hundred percent through of the opposite thing, you know, and those people are dangerous. <laughs> so it just heads up like they're dangerous to the movement. They're dangerous to themselves. But, um, it's also like that kind of ideological certainty. Um, is really, is actually really fragile because if you can convince yourself of that much of any one thing, all you have to do is change a parameter, and you can change everything else. Yeah, is does that does that explain the kind of neocon switch that we had from, you know, from guys like Christopher Hitchens and a bunch of other neocons who went from like they were like what like seventies trot Trotskyists. Some of them were, yeah. 
some of the, I mean, the neocons, the neocon uh, grandfathers were a weird mixture of like seventies Trotskyists and like um, Straussians, like Leo Straussians, which they, they they weren't really the same people at first. But hmm. um, yes, I think that expl- you also see it in France with Maoists. A lot of Maoists ripped and became conservatives um, in France. For similar reasons, it's like yeah, they they um, they needed they they kept the same intensity, only the that that compass needle drifted a little bit to the side. I'm going to name names here. Actually, um, my former friend Michael Rettenwald, um, who uh, was literally my chosen successor at the No Star, who now you know his last interview, he was like one of the last interview guests on Bill O'Reilly and his re- you know semi regular on Tucker Carlson has right two has written two books about how you know the left wing sucks and social justice warriors are evil. <laughs> Jeez. Um, like he was, uh, he was one of those people who was almost, a, you know, he, he had found the true religion of Marxism. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and he saw Marxism as opposed to, to liberal social justice. And, you know, when the Marxist didn't go with him in his anti, you know, completely in his anti social justice, you know, point of views, he completely flipped and everything changed. Like everything else he believed in changed, you know, he went from opposing capitalism to totally supporting it. Um, and you, you you do see his story, David Horowitz, uh, you know, kind of a neocon too. He was a Maoist, by the way. Um, did the same thing. Well, I don't want to call uh, you up, but didn't you say you started out? I started out in the I started out in the right wing. Yeah. So I mean, didn't you make the same transition then? Not really, because um, it wasn't. I didn't like actually wake up one day and discover myself to be a Marxist. Um, so what you're saying is that it's a. Uh, one of the issues there is that the speed with which they flip is that what you're yep okay yep like so for me what I, I can go into that a little bit like um i have always there are a couple of values that i have that i think kind of have like um even deeper than say my belief in marxism like i've always been distrustful of foreign wars <laughs> you know <laughs> um i tended to see them as a business conspiracy not entirely, and I've lessened on this actually as a left winger because I had another way to explain it. Um, when I was a right winger, I really didn't have a way to explain it except for as like you know profiteering conspiracies. Well, that was also uh, I mean that, that also had something to do with your like Europe your your particular background like where you grew up and like oh yeah I grew up in Georgia and I I dealt with some Marxists they were a part of International Answer and they were kind of. Die Hard, and this, you know, in the those were in the days where, like, because I started out actually kind of as a Marxist, and so maybe you could say that I did this and then undid it. Um, when I was a teenager, um, you know, I read Chomsky, I read a, a bunch of, I was in the Zine world, life in the nineties, folks. Yep, that was the nineties. Yep, um, and uh, I really, really, really was a hardcore. Like, I went, I actually, the only time um, that I had ever gone to the West Coast at all. Um, at before I was in my late twenties again later was to go to the Battle of Seattle when I was eighteen. Like, nice, nice. And I was, yeah, and I mean, I was like, I was a, uh, you know, I was a, you know, kind of a college anarcho. I mean, I, like a college high school anarcho communist. I was actually in high school when that happened, just finishing it. Um, and I was so turned off by what I saw there. I mean, I know this sounds strange to us now because we we tend to see a lot of. But I saw Pat Buchanan, that that thing, or people are associated with him. And then in 2001, um, um, the 9-11 happened. And then in 2003, when the second G8 happened, I was still kind of in the anti-globalization movement. But the only people who showed up were kind of like these 
the international answer people and the variety that I dealt with there were like pretty ML, Marxist Leninist, kind of soft Stalinisty. And, you know, it had a, a little bit of a boner for North Korea. There's at least a couple of those, of those types still hanging around Portland because they uh, apparently they showed up to a local uh, like cross tendency leftist group meeting like a, a year and a half ago or something and actually had a, and had from all reports they they busted out prepared speeches one of them and it didn't did involve like actually you know explicitly calling for the support of North Korea. So, yeah, I mean, these people were also is. supporting some regimes I thought were pretty right wing too. Like, like they were not just like keep the military off of Ahmadina Jad, but maybe that they're right. <laughs> um, I mean, standing for North Korea is probably a pretty smart move these days. You could get an ambassadorship. Oh yeah, um, I mean, but the funnily, I mean, funnily enough, like I also opposed war with North Korea, but I didn't feel like I needed to make apologetics to do that. Yeah, the um, um, I was gonna say, but one of, a key bit there, I think, because uh, and then you actually you mentioned the word, um, the, uh, the yeah the because uh, they and they really were that word was tossed around uh, anti globalism uh, and anti globalist protesters and this kind of thing. Where it's funny how that particular word has kind of like been um, has permutated in the last twenty years. Well, you know the funny thing about that, um, that's not new. So one of the things that I trace down, um, I listen to and have been in discussion with um, uh, Dan, I can't remember his last name, of the Knowledge Fight podcast, who they literally track Alex Jones. And I remember first encountering Alex Jones, I must have been right after 9-11, um, because I've known about him for a long time, since before Waking Life came out. Yeah, I think Waking, um, Waking Life would have been my uh, my first exposure. And that, that's funny to me because – well, part of it is because I come from this kind of right-wing milieu, so I knew about him. But I remember tracking down that that tactic had been used to adopt anti-globalism language since the the Rocky Mountain – what's that? What's the – Ruby Ridge? Local, no, no. It was right after Ruby Ridge where all the, all the kind of right-wing groups met together. It's the Rocky Mountain something. It was in Colorado. It's shortly after Ruby Ridge happened. Um, so it would have been it, the, like ninety four, but before before ninety five, right? And it's uh, Rocky Mountain Renaissance. I can't remember what the there, there's a name for it in these circles. But now, what exactly is a Rocky Mountain Rendezvous? It was a mixture of like militia movements, the Klan, um, all the hits. Yeah, yeah, and they met they met outside Colorado, and they explicitly adopted both leaderless resistance movements, which was kind of a, a left-wing thing at one point, oh, even so. though we don't think about it now. <laughs> yeah, they did they do twinkle fingers and, uh, and like and uh, five-hour no, well, meetings? No, leaderless resistance movements is funny because, like, yes, that language was adopted in Occupy, but you know what it was actually used for? What? Left-wing terror cells. Because leaderless resistance people can't betray each other, even under torture. They don't know enough to betray you can't build a movement out of it, but if all you want to do is like blow stuff up, it's pretty effective. Um, and they also started using globalism language to try to get disaffected um, middle middle class, maybe even left leaning people who maybe had a problem more uncomfortable with brown people <laughs> um, on their side. So this isn't new at all. I mean, and, and it, in fact, it's as old as like you know neither left nor right as a slogan, which is the, an explicit fascist thing. Um, now, it's never been all that effective. Um, 
But I'll give you another example of that and how it kind of got into that right-wing world. I was on a Rage Against Machine listserv that I would get on at my high school. (laughs) (laughs) Kids, the the 90s was a very particular time that at some some point, I think they really need, Doug really needs to do like, uh, we, uh, you know, as much as like, cause like, you know, how like late sixties, early seventies radical movements are getting reexamined now. We really need to do a full-on reexamination of just the particular like fucking weird and hopeless and and just just strange like just bad politics and weird cultural formations that was like like the American nineties left and oh, yeah. the I culture mean, like, there we, too. So you sorry, got on this sorry, list, Yeah, anyway, sorry, everyone. No, no, you got on this listserv, right? And you would see people for free Leon Peltier and free Mumbai Bull Jamal, and also like Ruby Ridge was fucked up, which actually, as a side note, it was. Yeah. But, but like, you get into this world where you're like, wait, I came here for the Mumbai Bull Jamal, but these kind of Alex Jonesy peripheral people were tied into that. Um, and uh, I mean, it was really, I, I think it was really until about two years before Trump that you would still have Alex and, you know, RT, and I used to actually comment on this, you know, like Webster Tarpley and and um, a lot of, you know, the paleocons who published at Counterpunch, um, and even kind of the sketchier end of, like, uh, of Cockburn's politics, um, where they would flirt with these sort of, like, like right-wing conspiracy people like Justin Ramondo or Lou Rockwell would, you know, would oh, go God. And talk to, oh, would God. talk to Bill Moyers. Yo, God, and, Lou Rockwell, Jesus. So I got into that world. Like, I was never a Lou Rockwellite, like, I, you know, because I wasn't a libertarian. I was, but like, like someone gave me a, a republic, not an empire. And I didn't catch all the, I didn't catch all the, all the dog whistles in it. You know, I was just like, yeah, this is a coherent anti-war statement. We don't need empires. Yeah. And so I kind of got into, like, the antiwarga.com, like, Scott Horton, who I actually still kind of respect, even though he's a libertarian nut. Mm. Um, that world of anti-war movement, because the left-wing world was doing stuff like, you know, trying to make apologia for our, for our Medinajad, or at least the part that I dealt with. Actually, it wasn't that common, but I just ran into those people. Um, and, I've, like, I just slowly got sucked into that world. Like that conspiracy. They use the same globalism language, right? Right. They uh, they were they were a lot of times at the time they would talk about human biodiversity, which was originally a left wing. You know that's code for race realism now. Um, it has been since the middle of the aughts, but in the nineties that was like a that was a left wing call to like respect tribal life and you know give people local autonomy. Um, and as a person who thought I was ethical, I got in like, oh, there's a right wing articulation of this. And I didn't even really realize, when I call myself a right-winger, I mean, I did, by the time I was, say, 24, I was I thought of myself as a right-winger, actually, like um, like the anti-war right. But any time in between that, I actually didn't even really realize until after the fact how far right I'd gone. And um, what turned me off was a, was a couple of things. Um, I started fading out of it around the around the housing crisis because the libertarian economics and the nationalist economics didn't make any sense about how they were explaining that to me. Um, and the and the other thing was being a teacher. <laughs> you know, um, when I got out of the insurance world and got into being a teacher, I started seeing a, a side of society again that I grew up in that, but I kind of 
when you're, you're college educated and you know you, you are a slight, you know you are fairly privileged even if you're poor um you you, you forget things and uh, that sort of slowly woke me back up so the process of it took me about two year two or three years to end up on the right wing and about two or three years to get out and I was kind of just in the wilderness for a long time um I, I was beginning to read Marx again around 2007, like right around the economic collapse, um, you know, the Great Recession. Right. And, um, because I, I was reading both Austrian and Keynesian analysis of what was happening, and neither one rang true to me. Um, and I knew enough about economics to know that I really didn't know from any of the theories that I've been given how to explain what was going on. Um, I think that was a, that's one of the, the oldest from that from that era that one of the oldest. Videos, actually, even before, like, not even like a vlog, but it was like a little like video essay by Rich, uh, Professor Richard Wolf of all things that I think he did with um, that he did with either um, Abby Martin's group or something, talking about how you know, you know, like the the, uh, the uh, helping to bring in like a Marxist explanation for all of the two thousand eight and shit that, yeah, I, that um, I've, I've encountered. You know, funnily enough, like I I, I actually have. I, uh, JG is um, still kind of follows Abby. I, I don't, but that was actually part of my transition out. Um, but it also made me aware, like my transition out also made me aware of how much like inroads have been made by the right into the left because I actually been snagged up in that. Um, and so, like, I mean, I grew up in a in a, a kind of anti-political household. Like, you know, my mother was. Um, a nurse, I mean, a waitress turned nurse and, you know, kind of a, a social Democrat. And, and my um, stepfather was, uh, was a conservative on law and justice issues and, you know, not necessarily most woke person on earth, but um, believed in, in socialized medicine even in the 90s, you know, and when he was voting for um, Ross Perot. So 1992, you know, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so like that's 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 the world I kind of came out of, and that's different. I mean, I, I don't know a lot of left wingers with that, so I wouldn't say, like yeah, I wouldn't say that that I like flipped from right to left. I would say I kind of did embody that over cocksure confidence in the left, and then when the slightest bit of disappointment crept in in my in my teens, I you know I I flipped without even realizing it, and then sort of reality snuck back up on me. But a lot of people can insulate themselves from reality pretty hard. And this is one of the reasons why I don't always trust my own analysis of things, even though, you know, I get asked to come in and speak like authoritatively on a lot of stuff because I have been wrong, like utterly wrong in the past. Because and and what was what was interesting about that is my kind of moral valences didn't change much from going from the left to the right to the left again. It was my expl- it was my explanation for the moral valences to change, which does mean that like I tend to think this idea that we have no shared values at all to build upon when we talk to people who disagree with us. It's just not true. Um, that actually makes us feel better about our own um, awareness. I think then it's actually a representation of how you actually should be approaching people. Gotcha. Jacob, uh, response? Well, I think one of the things that I find that kind of complicates that, though, is that I think you can deal with people who have a very well-thought-out, articulate, 
uh, articulated moral framework, but it is one that is based on premises that are just fundamentally incompatible with yours. Oh yeah, I mean that happens, but you, I, I don't. I often think that the that the that the articulations are more incompatible than the root emotions. All right, so like. Most people are. I mean, even conservatives. If you, it, like, I don't trust all of John Heights, um, Jonathan Heights research on this. Um, That's probably a smart move. Yeah, I don't because it's based on self-reporting and it claims to work in any society, which is crazy. Like, because what is left and right actually is pretty historically spe- specific. Um, but uh, but like approaches to fairness, I actually can make inroads with libertarians on particularly on war issues. And then usually they have a very um, abstract notion of property. And I used to hammer away at this. Um, I used to try to hammer away at it logically. They, most most libertarians have, have Lockean assumptions about the justification of property, but they talk about like, you know, non-aggression principles and all that. And, and what you notice is that when you point out that their Lockean assumptions about use is just not true, like historically it's provably not true we didn't all just co- agree from land use to the rights to our property like it was privatized and even at the in like john Locke was writing at the time in which that happened so he knew it yeah um you know and um, not to mention he was uh, he was across the water from ver- where a very particular form of land acquisition was you know was actively happening for a good couple centuries yeah and also he wrote the Constitution of South Carolina justifying both that and slavery. Just you know, <laughs> it's funny how that works. Uh, history is fun. History is fun, uh, folks. That's all, all we got to say. So, you know, I'm, this isn't this isn't the John Locke hate hour. There's there. I think leftists should actually take a very dialectical, nuanced view of of Locke, but y- you have to deal with that. And I would chip away at that. And you know what? I learned I wasn't convincing people who I was arguing with. But I was convincing people who were watching who I was arguing with. Yeah, that's what's... as long as I didn't cyberbully them. If I cyberbullied them, I lost. I lost people. You know, like it would just automatically turn people off. I would automatically be the bad guy, which is funny because cyberbullying gets a, a like gets a pretty high short term return. Like you will always get likes doing it, but but it tends to turn people off, um, even who are inclined to agree with you. Maybe you didn't bully them enough. Maybe if you had destroyed them with facts and logic, it would have gone better. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, if you talk to Ben Burgess, uh, have you guys talked to Ben yet? No, I'm not. I'm. I want to talk to him before, uh, before or right as uh, his book hits. Yeah, um, Ben and I, you know, we, we were at a conference um, in Idaho, um, and we hung out, and we talked a lot about this about using logic and Ben's more of a Ben like both Ben and I are actually kind of logic nerds like formal logic nerds it's it was part of my education but we kind of disagree on how effective it is yeah Ben is um that's the funny thing about that about that that lecture video is you can hear god what what the fuck was was it October of last year it was the Jordan Peterson con- like anti well, response to Jordan was, Peterson con- it was conference? a response to Jordan Peterson turning down a debate that he agreed to, to with Doug Lane um, and then he disagreed to it because he didn't think Doug was big enough um, didn't they originally like weren't they originally trying to get like Zizek to do that one well yeah well he, they actually they, they the Zizek uh, Jordan Peterson debate was kind of 
pressured by by Doug. But originally, it was Doug asked Peterson to come and talk to him because he said that you know no Marxist will debate me. Doug was like, I'll be that Marxist. Um, uh, originally, Peterson's um, agent said yes. Um, then they backed out later because Doug wasn't big enough. And then they're like, okay, we'll get Zizek. And then she said, kind of said yes, and it kind of said no. And apparently, that's happening now. That sounds like the sort of thing that Zizek would say. Well, yeah, I mean, he's also he's. Zizek's getting up there, man. He's, uh, I don't know, he's he's not doing all that hot. He's not healthy these days, no. Um, he's got, I think, was it confirmed Bell's palsy or something? Yeah. And, uh, what I just wanted to mention on that, the because uh, I think that was the very first time that I ever, the, the video of Ben's lecture there, Have you had you guys talked to him at all before that, or was that the first time everybody met him, that you all met? Uh, I think Doug had talked to him, but I, I met him. I met him like a few, I like literally like I think a couple of um, hours before that. <laughs> yeah, that's it was, or maybe the night it was the night we we met like the night before. Like I had just flown into Idaho and I've been hanging out with Doug and uh, Michael Brooks was there too. And you can I think you can hear both of our voices in that video. Either. Yeah, there, there's if you listen to it, I'll I can cue in a little bit of, or at least put a link to it. The video of Ben's Ben's lecture there. Strategically, I mean. I, uh, I think Brooks and I have different answers on this, actually. But um, how do you play off of that tension without plat- platforming? And I say this as a person who does it because I'll, I'll talk on Peter Hitchens exactly on that point. Like that, there's these these Catholic reactionaries, and if you if you fight Peterson with their arguments, it's actually easier to hit him than with ours. Sure, um, but. At what point? I mean, like, how, where do you? How do you use that strategically? Is what I'm asking. Like, how can you actually play that out? Because we're not those guys either. We don't actually think that, like, sure, we could even. We don't even think it's possible that you could go back to like natural, like normal traditional family norms of the 19th century invented traditions. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if uh, Mike wants to respond to that also, because uh, I'd be curious about his thoughts. But I'm. I guess I would say that. If the goal isn't to make Jordan Peterson fans, uh, Chris and Peter Hitchens fans, right? Like that's 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 not um, you know it's not totally clear to me that that's you know that's uh, got better. a move that's forward or at least very much forward. But no, it's just I just was deeply amused to because I was watching the video. I'm like, hey, wait a minute! I know who at least two of these people are just by their <laughs> just by their voice alone. And, it, and it's still trying to get um, once in all, like because I'm uh, I'm on uh, Michael Brooks's Discord trying to get him to trying to get him to like have you on his show because I think it'd be really funny both to have you like talk to uh, talk to Griscom but also to kind of uh, expose you to that audience. Anyway, this is well, all. Like, it's lefty, funny because apparently there's chat. a fan. There's a fan that Michael's contacted me about it um, a few times. Like he, he swears it's going to happen one day, but we are always trying to figure out what I'm going to talk about. That's not going to start a fight. So good luck. <laughs> I'm also uh, in conversations. I think I'll be interviewing Jamie from Antifada soon. So we'll see how that goes too. That'd be actually, that'd be kind of cool. The, um, <laughs> at some, yeah, it's at some point, you, uh, if you ever know anybody, well, I mean, you were, you were, yeah, you were an English major, weren't you? Yeah. The, uh, yes, I was the, um, English and anthropology, uh, English and um, anthropology and philosophy. Gothic Marxism so, yeah. is becoming a thing again. <laughs> Jacob, you look bored. No. Oh, okay, just checking. I, I'm just not in the Michael Brooks Discord. I'm surprised. I think you'd enjoy it. 
Why? Are there are a lot of memes. Uh, well, it's, it, it's in a certain extent, but also t- uh, responding to both his and Sam's shows in real time. Because you can, because it's one of those things where, the, like, at least Michael, Michael, like half of the half of, especially on Sam Cedar show, like half the staff are all, you know, are like actively like in the Discord, and you can mention stuff in there that'll pop up on the show, which is kind of a, it's a nice little trick. But you know, but no, that but I was that was a nice little video, and I will, and I am trying to get. It's the fun thing about Ben Burgess is that he's um, he's effectively. I think we both grew up maybe about an hour apart because he's about my age and he's from East Lansing. Oh yeah, he and I—we're all the same age. As for, for your listeners to know, we're all well. You're like what a couple years older than me. Ben and I are almost the exact same age. Yeah. So. And at the, but, um, um, trying to get him and uh, and um, Rob Larson, who is uh, who is teaching up in Tacoma, who's been trying to do a thing, to come down and do like a, a book thing at Powell's. Down here, but they they try to get that together, and it's not really happening. But still, have him come down and give a talk for you know everybody from you know local like DSA folks and everybody else too. I was gonna try to like set that up at some point, but who knows when that's gonna happen. To be concluded on the next episode of giving the mic to the wrong person.